This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance. All right, welcome back, everyone. Uh, this is Kevin Grzynski. I'm an M4 going into internal medicine. I'm in my third week of my MICU rotation. It's probably been one of my favorite rotations yet. I don't know if it's because it's fourth year and I get to leave pretty much whenever I want or the amount of learning is pretty incredible. We are doing something a little bit different today. We're not in person, we're all virtual. Dr. Abrams is here with us. Hello, everybody. It's great to be here. I've been telling these guys I'm, uh, I've been spending the last two weeks or three weeks now doing an ethics fellowship, and it's uh, seven to eight hours of Zoom a day, and I've been on Zoom now since uh, nine o'clock this morning, so I have a little bit of Zoom fatigue. And then we have two guests with us today. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi everyone, uh, my name's Maggie Bernowski. I'm also a fellow fourth year. Um, I'm going into emergency medicine. I'm from the Chicagoland area. Um, last month, I did my first month of emergency medicine over at Cook County. I had such a fantastic experience over there. And this month I'm doing my away rotation at Resurrection Hospital. And it's also been uh, really different seeing a community-based medicine, but really cool and challenging. And I've I really enjoyed the past three weeks so far of that. And hi, I'm uh, Mira Marcioretto. I am also a fourth year medical student, also going into emergency medicine, who is also from the Chicago area. I spent the last month doing an away rotation at Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas because I am going into the Air Force. Um, and that was really great because we got to split up between county and um, the Air Force Hospital, which is more of a community-based setting. And now I'm home at Rush doing more of an academic center emergency department rotation. So it's been really cool seeing everything. And it's great being a fourth year. And then just one thing, I've been excited to do this case for a couple of reasons, but something cool is, I don't think you guys know, but Megan and I actually did a master's program together before medical school, I don't know, five or six years ago now. Kevin and I go way back. <laughs> it's cool to kind of, you know, knowing where we came before this to see where we are now. I'm excited to see how both Megan and Mira are going to do. I think you guys will enjoy to hear them think out loud. And with that, we will get started. Tell us what kind of master's program was it? It was a <laughs> master's of science in medical physiology over at Loyola. So just down the street from here. Wonderful. All right, Alphot one girls. We have a 55 year old male who presented to the emergency room with one month history of progressive fatigue. All right, so um, I guess just talking out loud in terms of how I'd, I'd approach this, especially as a future emergency medicine physician, one month fatigue, I'm thinking chronic rather than, you know, more acute onset of symptoms. And I'd probably start off just by, you know, running through just kind of buckets of where I'd place a lot of my different possible differentials. So just kind of going by like organ systems of things I'd be looking for. I think when I think of fatigue, hematology, uh, that whole category first comes to mind. So I think I'd be running through my, you know, you have a middle-aged male. I don't know any about anything about his history or family history, but I think cancers, um, anemias would be on my radar. Um, I think other big organ systems I'd be thinking of would be cardiac. You know, does he have any cardiac history, heart problems? Uh, renal would also be on my radar. Does he have um, chronic uh, kidney disease, anything like that? I think those would be the three first big ones I'd start with by just running through and keeping in the back of my mind. I think casting some big buckets like that is a great way to approach it. Mira, I'm going to challenge the emergency med or future emergency med physician in you and 
what are the immersion things you would want to rule out? Anything neuro-based. So if they are like progressive fatigue and now they're having some sort of respiratory complaint and like they're in some sort of exacerbation, you just want to make sure that like they aren't breathing too hard. I really want to check and keep going back to their ABCs and, and make sure they're like maintaining their airway, able to breathe and they're having good circulation just before going into the room. Otherwise we can go into that like more detailed history. With one month of fatigue, it does sound pretty chronic. Other things to make sure we get before going into the room, hopefully, would be like a finger stick glucose and an EKG as well. I like how you guys are thinking. I'm going to give you guys some help now and add a little bit more to the story. So Aliquot 2, he initially present, presented to his PCP four months ago with complaints of abdominal discomfort and bloating. Some labs at that time were notable for a hemoglobin of 11.4. White count was normal, platelets were normal. They also checked a CMP, it was normal. So at this point he was referred to his gastroenterologist. I think he hadn't done, uh, hadn't had a colonoscopy at this point. He had a mildly low hemoglobin. So they, they decided to do an EGD and a colonoscopy, both were normal. And as all G, as I've learned, GI doctors love to start people on PPIs. And uh, I think we can stop there. Yeah, I'm still definitely worried that he might be occultly bleeding into somewhere, but it's weird that they wouldn't have seen it on the first colonoscopy. I'm wondering what happened between like four months ago and in the past month, if like his fatigue went away for two months or how that kind of worked out with him. It, has this been going on for actually four months or one month, just grabbing that time frame down. And then I really want to nail down like his bowel movements, how they're looking, if he is having blood in his stool or any sort of melana. Yeah, I, th I think everything Mira said are really great questions and directions to go in. If his timeline is like initially four months ago of, of abdominal discomfort and bloating, but maybe now really just one month of fatigue, I'm definitely curious to see what his hemoglobin is today. If there is some occult bleeding that's been going on for maybe even let's say this whole time, but now it's one month of fatigue, my thought would be that, you know, maybe the bleeding is picked up. Uh, maybe he's more anemic now. Maybe he, his hemoglobin might be even a little lower at this time. That's actually causing him to feel fatigue. Whereas before living at 11.4, he was fine. And maybe just having that bloating and discomfort, but not actually feeling too tired. So I'd be curious what the hemoglobin is today going on the lines of what Mira talked about of melana and occult bleeding, you know, not that doing a rectal exam, um, and a guaiac test is very, you know, specific or like really leads you in any one direction. But I think definitely we'll be doing a rectal exam today, I would imagine, uh, and checking for some of those signs too. Love how you guys are thinking. Love how you're already, you know, putting this into some kind of time course. So we see it's four months ago. It was 11. You're already wondering, okay, what's his hemoglobin now though? Like, yeah, it was 11 then, but he's feeling fatigued now. So what is it? I love how you're thinking about that. You know, when I was in the emergency room, some kind of bleed was often... A complaint we often saw. So I'm wondering what you guys are kind of looking for to help differentiate between like an upper bleed versus a lower bleed. What kind of things help tease out one or the other without, you know, endoscopy scanning? Yeah. So it's really good to get a thorough history on this. Um, if we're more concerned about an upper GI bleed, you're going to see like dark tarry stools. Um, they're going to complain more of melana and they should be pretty smelly too. If they're getting more of a lower GI bleed, typically you'll have more bright red blood. And then you want to really parse out with your patient, whether that bright red blood is like mixed in with the stool or if it's just when they wipe, because you can kind of differentiate between a hemorrhoid and more internal bleeding in your GI tract. And then you want to get a good alcohol history too, because that will, that will clue you in if there might be some varices going on somewhere. 
So I think Aliquot 3 will help you guys a little bit. So his past history was significant for type 2 diabetes, which was controlled with oral medications. He did have a long history of alcohol use, but he did share that he significantly cut back in the past six months and then stopped completely two months ago. And that was really in the setting of all these symptoms kind of occurring. He was trying to do something to kind of address what was going on. He is a former smoker. He's a pack per day for 15 years, did quit 10 years ago. No recreational drug use. And then these were his medications. He was taking a SGLT2 inhibitor, ferrous sulfate, and then a PPI. One thing I want to add right off the bat, so because he's on ferrous sulfate, you do want to make sure that it is melana and not like because of the iron, and that will do false positive stuff on the heme. So it's good to know that he's on ferrous sulfate. And you also want to know if he's taking Pepto-Bismol because that can cause some black stools too. Great catch, Mira. So then Ben reading this, just as Mira was talking about, you know, we know we have an alcohol history here. So, you know, varices is still on the radar, like that can cause bleeding, that can cause this decreased hemoglobin. And then over time that can, you know, our hemoglobin could even be a lot lower to the point that he now has symptomatic fatigue uh, from his anemia. Something else, like when we were, you know, just brainstorming different categories, you know, different organ systems earlier, I was thinking later, another big category that I also, I don't think should be overlooked and maybe less so with abdominal distension, you know, depression, really just anything psych-related still could be another cause of fatigue and, and, you know, alcohol use also could be another risk factor. So keeping that also in the back, back of my mind too. Oh, that's awesome. I really like that. And then I also just want to make sure, like he's saying he's out two months ago. I mostly believe him, but I'm going to keep a close eye on him. And if he starts like sweating on me and looking like he's going into withdrawal, I'm going to start like a um, withdrawal protocol and like probably add on some benzos. Something that's kind of always stuck with me is trust, but verify. Yeah. So I'll follow that up. What, how would you guys like characterize his alcohol use? What would you, would you get into it further or just kind of leave it at that? Uh, I would definitely want to just know how much he was drinking when he was drinking at his maximum and like how much that was. And then also, what do you mean by cut back and completely stopped or just stop with the hard liquor or like, are you, are you still drinking beer and wine? That kind of thing. Cause stopped means different things for different people. And then also maybe related, maybe not related to his current symptoms, but again, Mira mentioned keeping benzos uh, ready to go. I'd want to know more just so we need to know, you know, is he at risk of withdrawing? So I'd also want to know specific questions of, has he had a history of alcohol withdrawal before? Has he ever had seizures, hallucinations, DTs, anything like that? Just so I know, how soon do I need to get Ativan on board? I think one of the important points that, that Megan you just brought up was, was the, really gets to the issue of when people say fatigue, what does it mean? And, and, and what sort of buckets can you put it into? And uh, because in some ways it is different than weakness, right? Because some people say I'm weak. And then once you say I'm weak, you're saying, are you globally weak or are you, you know, are you locally weak? And fatigue is a little different. And in, in my mind, fatigue is more systemic. And, or, and, and then you're just asking the question, okay, what system? We've honed in on a certain system, but you were right to draw back and say, hold on, there are a lot of other systems here. When you started that, that, that could lead us in a certain direction. It's such a nonspecific symptom. Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, there's probably, there's a lot more organ systems too we haven't touched on, but it could be a component of so many different diets. Let's move on to Alcohol 4. Now we have the physical exam and I'm going to spare the listeners reading this exam and I'll summarize it really briefly. It's a completely normal exam. Vitals are normal and then head to toe, no significant findings. I'll let you girls just look it over. If you want to comment on anything, like there are, there are always pertinent negatives. So if there's things you were thinking about and you're not seeing them, feel free to comment on that. But otherwise this was a normal exam. 
I just have to comment, I don't see the rectal exam. His sclera are clear, which is good to hear. And he's breathing fine. We're not hearing any crackles. So, um, and there's no, I don't think I saw anything about lymphedema or like, so I'm not super worried about heart failure or something like that going on. Another thing, another category that, or like organ system we hadn't talked about, you're a little bit with endocrine, but uh, thyroid is, I think, a you know, organ in and of itself that our entire class frequently gripes that we just do not understand. And I hope to one day, but you know, thyroid, hypothyroid is a cause of fatigue. And so reading right here, no thyromegaly, not that that necessarily rules in or out anything, but that was something else that I was like, ah, oh, I really don't know how to work up a thyroid. That's great pickup. I like that. But, and so true. <laughs> And his uh, neuro exam is normal. Not that asterisk is always there. We're not seeing that. So you're, to me, it sounds like you're much less suspicious for something hepatic in etiology based on the physical exam. Megan's happy we're not dealing with any thyroid. <laughs> I am. Another, another thing I just thought of, and you know, I just came from resident conference today uh, with resurrection. Another we, the theme of today actually... Uh, was abdominal pain. And we talked through a lot, uh, you know, and again, this is the future ER and me, I guess. And, you know, I've been with ER residents all day, but we talk a lot about like, okay, you walk in the room and we did some practice oral boards today and you're asking questions. And one thing we always kept forgetting was sick or not sick. And that's something we've been talking a lot about. It's something, obviously, I think all of us, we just, you will get better with the more patients we see and reading this, my, you know, from his constitutional, no apparent distress overall, this exam says to me that like he, at least in this moment, going back to the acute versus chronic, like he doesn't seem like he is sick in this moment. Yeah. And looking at his pressures, that's another thing I would be super concerned about. If I'm worried about a DI blade, he's at 110 over 51. Uh, the pulse pressure is not great on that, but like, um, I'm a, a little more reassured. I'm going to keep an eye on that. Same with the heart rate, which is 72 right now. So he's normal, but like, those are, as Megan was saying, what we're going to keep monitoring for sick or not sick. You guys are doing so awesome right now. I'm unbelievably impressed listening, listening to you guys talk about this. I love that you said sick or not sick. We're going to go into the labs. I'll summarize them. We have a CMP. The, the lights are, are normal. Creatinine's normal. There's elevated glucose at 179. Billy's slightly up at 2.5. Alclass is normal. AST is elevated at 224. ALT is elevated at 69. And then a CBC has a normal white count. The RBCs are low. Hemoglobin is 4.5. Matacrit is 13.5. MCV is 107. The RDW is elevated at 24. And platelets are low at 98. So... Sick or not sick? We need to transfuse this guy. Yeah, he's gonna need a couple of units. <laughs> I don't okay. know. Maybe want us. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Got two units, and I'll show you the repeat CBC with some more info after that. But let's pause, and why don't you guys kind of comment on what kind of picture this paints? So he, uh, one thing that jumps out, and I don't know, is that the AST is greater than two times the ALD which I feel like is the med student rule. I don't think that happens. I haven't seen that super often in real life. It's likely like an alcoholic pattern of like liver damage. Um, his billy is high, but not super high, which is probably why we're not seeing jaundice. Typically it needs to be around three to start seeing some jaundice. And then his hemoglobin is super low. So he really is going to need some units. And the other important thing there is it's a macrocytic anemia. It's, he's at 107 on his MCV. Yeah, I, the MCV definitely stood out to me. Another thing going back to his LFT or just like his, yeah, LFTs in general and markers of liver function. Kind of surprised the albumin's not abnormal. I don't know, I just assumed that this guy with a long drinking history was seeing AST like neuroside greater than the ALT. I just assumed I'd see like more abnormalities with like albumin and enzyme uh, synthesizing and everything. But what do you think about the platelet? Okay. <laughs> That's another. Oh. I guess that's another marker of um, 
liver function, but I like INR for that too. So I would want to see that definitely. And I mean, we're going to need a type and screen and a, like all the coags now that we're giving him some units. I mean, I want to, I want to type and screen him. I don't want to just give Oneg. I don't think he, he's not sick enough to need Oneg. The platelets are pretty low. So we might, we might end up having to give whole blood. I'd rather just give RBCs for now. I think you, you bring up a really good point. And we are sick or not sick on the physical exam. We are kind of at the agreement that he didn't really seem sick. Vitals were okay. But now we're seeing a hemoglobin of 4.5. And you kind of put that together. Mm-hmm. 4.5 is like all our eyes opened, right? But you kind of put it into context of, okay, his blood pressure is fine. He's not tachycardic. So we don't, there's no rush to just give him O negative, right? Like we have time to do second screen and confuse him. But that was, I love that you were able to do that and talk that out loud. That was great. So we did give two units and here's the repeat CBC. So white count is low. Um, hemoglobin responded to 6.5. The RDW still elevated, platelets are low at 73. And then there's a differential there. And on the smear, we see schistocytes, teardrop cells and elliptocytes. Well, the white count being low, I assume like there's a bit of like dilution, right? Since we just gave him like packed art two liters. Um, the schistocytes is interesting. I mean, but I guess it goes, you know, you know, we have a macrocytic. So I'm thinking of like your Maha is there. When I, you know, before seeing this, I was thinking along lines of the history of alcohol use. When I think of a macrocytic anemia, I think of B12 uh, with that, with him. Um, but the schistocytes is interesting. The schistocytes is weird to me too. Something going on in his heart. I don't think there's something wrong with his valves. But the schistocytes- You know, I'm oh, sorry, keep going here. Oh no, that's it. I, that's all I was. Please go off. <laughs> we kind of talked about this today at conference, I guess. So with the context, I'm already blanking. Does he have diarrhea? Anything like that? Do we no. know? Okay. I don't know. I guess I, you know, we, we talked about this earlier today, like with schistocytes, with low platelets, platelets, abdominal bloating. This is like kind of not shot the dark about diarrhea, but I was just thinking of like HUS literally because we were talking about that earlier today. I would have never thought about that otherwise, but we're, I'm triggered from that earlier today, but without diarrhea, that's sort of weird. I, I like how you're thinking. I'm wondering, okay, so when you guys see a macrocytic picture, Megan mentioned B12 as being something that immediately comes to mind. Is there anything else on your differential for macrocytic anemia? Folate. And I can't remember all the other ones. I'm too far away from step one. <laughs> and step one. Um, but I mean, also another thought is like, I'm going to want to give this guy thiamine too. Yeah. Just as a general rule. With like chron- or with uh, anemia of chronic disease, that's what it is. Anemia of chronic disease, I think it's like initially micro, but then it becomes normo. I was trying to think about that because we know, you know, his hemoglobin super low. He's clearly losing blood from somewhere. And so if this was a pure, you know, iron deficiency, like hemorrhage, you know, loss of blood from somewhere, you'd expect it to be the MCV, you'd expect it to be less than 80. But here we are greater than 100, slightly greater than 100 in the, in the history of alcohol. Now with evidence that like blood cells are getting sliced somewhere in the vasculature at some point, his kidney function looks pretty good, which is interesting. He doesn't seem to have evidence his, uh, you know, he doesn't have history of IV drug use. His heart function appears pretty solid. And, you know, trying to think of like, is there a synodic valve that blood vessels are getting sheared on? Like, I, probably not. doesn't sound like that. But it's just interesting thinking like, where are these blood vessels or where are these red blood cells getting sliced somewhere? I, I think you guys are right on with this. And, and you know, your, your thought about anemia in general, either being you're losing blood somewhere or else you're not making it appropriately or else some combination of those two. I, I take it, Kevin, the point you were trying to make is alcohol itself is an independent, is an independent cause of macrocytic anemia, irrespective, I think, of both B12 and folate. I, I think it has its own specific properties that cause macrocytosis, which I don't know what they are. Yeah, you know, I've come across that in reading, and but then also like in your 
I think what we're commonly taught and see is pretty heavy drinkers. They're just nutritionally deficient. And I feel like it's usually a folate that would present first before a B12 would ever present. Mm-hmm. And something I just did want to touch on, you're, you're already thinking it, but you know, the hemoglobin is low. What are, what are ways we lose blood? We lose blood and we can lose it, like just bleeding out um, in our GI tract, trauma. I don't think this guy has any trauma. There's no obvious. And then by not making it well enough. So that could be another reason for it to be low. And he does have some teardrop cells. I don't remember all the heme stuff. These feel like things for the smart doctors upstairs to pick up. Well, I think the teardrop cells are when you see them like uh, having trouble getting squeezed out of the spleen is I think how I think of teardrop cells. So yeah, so that's a great point. I think like I was so zoned in on like seeing schistocytes, but looking this closer, you know, it's only a few, there's more teardrop cells. I feel like going back to, you know, step one, step two, studying schistocytes was like, you know, helmet cells, so easy to understand it's getting life somewhere, but the teardrop cells um, shouldn't be overlooked. All right. I think this is a good point to do something that I enjoy doing and it's challenging you guys to create a problem representation. So with everything you've gathered now, I kind of, I would like you, you can tag team to summarize all the pertinent things that are guiding your thinking going forward into like a two, three sentence summary. Yeah, we got a 55-year-old gentleman with a history of type 2 diabetes and heavy alcohol use presenting with a month of fatigue after a GI workup, now with a hemoglobin. Oh, yeah, now with a hemoglobin of 4.9 and otherwise asymptomatic. Anything you'd add to that, Megan? Yeah, also in the context of four months ago, abdominal distension and discomfort, but really no other symptoms at this time. Um, outside of what Mira already said, I you know, we were very... Definitely really focused on the uh, low hemoglobin. Others, like his physical exam was really largely unremarkable. Vital signs, he's hemodynamically stable. Uh, he appears well and labs are otherwise, besides the low hemoglobin, significant uh, for elevated AST compared to ALT, slightly elevated bilirubin, um, and thrombocytopenia. I love it. I feel like from that, I, I have an idea where you girls are going. And I think it's a good point to move on to aliquot 6. So we're going to do a little more advanced data at this point. Did some iron studies. Iron came back high, ferritin came back high. We checked LDH and it was greater than 6,650. Hepoglobin was less than eight. Folic acid was normal at 13.8. Vitamin B12 was less than 109, which is low. Then there was a room workup that included an ANA screen, rheumatoid factor, smooth muscle antibodies, ceruloplasmin, which were all normal. Is he still in the emergency department for all this, getting all this? <laughs> he was discharged home totally fine. <laughs> I, I there's, no bed, Mira, there's no beds upstairs. He's getting hobs in the ED right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, B12 is back in some I don't know how to look at that. Billion dollar ED workout. <laughs> yeah. Um, so his haptic golden is low. So a sign of like, I think intravascular damage where there's bleeding somewhere. So like uh, haptoglobin is what binds to free heme. So that's why it gets low when it's binding to free heme. So, and then the LDH being that high. Is, I'm sorry. Well, I think the elevated LDH and the low haptoglobin, like you were just talking about, I think that I could be wrong, but I think that part's the part that's consistent with the schistocytes, um, like the shearing of red blood cells from somewhere. I feel like that's your classic like hemolytic part. And then the low B12 is probably the part that's consistent with the elevated MCV. Um, and then looking at your iron studies, again, we think that he's losing blood from somewhere because um, obviously his hemoglobin is super low, which I feel like I was definitely really anchored to this entire time. But his iron being high, his ferritin being high is interesting um, that, you know, going back to again, like, is this, a, is he losing blood or is this a problem with like making it in the first place? Also weird. I mean, he's on iron though. Is that 
I don't know. I I don't think he has a chronic iron poisoning picture. I don't I don't feel like he overdosed on iron, but oh god, maybe that's on our differential now. You raise a good question. Like the iron and ferritin being high is kind of discordant with what we're thinking. Like you'd expect something different, but Mira even reminded me of something I didn't think of is you know he on his meds is iron, but what did we give him? Gave him a bunch of blood. Right. Oh, that's a good point. So when I when I was looking at this and I remembered that all it's not that surprising. So when you when you have units, iron and ferritin can be high, and I had to look it up too, but that can even persist for weeks and months after getting units. So it kind of rules the value of the studies, but I thought it'd be a good talking point. So I we, we kept it in there. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. And we're getting near the end here. And you guys have kind of walked through what you're thinking. I think you know we have a good idea of what might be going on and this is a tough point where it brings up, is this something like Occam's razor where there's, you know, one explanation for all the problems or is it Hickam's dictum where the patient can have as many problems as they want to have? What do you guys think of, you know, you suggested the, the LDH haptoglobin picture and the schistocytes kind of go hand in hand. And then we have this low B12. I just want to tell you guys, I am such a great believer in Occam's razor, although <laughs> Hickam's dictum does happen. I have to say it now. <laughs> I mean, it's just weird that four months ago or three months ago, I think he had like a totally negative AGD and um, colonoscopy. I feel like they would have seen some at least brewing, but I, I think alcoholic cirrhosis with some varices would be the Occam's razor side of things where it would explain a lot. And one of these varices is bleeding. Yeah, I agree. Going back to also like, is it a blood loss or a blood making problem? You know, especially with a baseline already low hemoglobin at one point, but then what a massive drop from 11 something to 4.5 today, four months later. Um, I, I agree with uh, the direction Mira is heading in right now. So do you guys think this is a gross blood loss or a different kind of blood loss? I think it's more occult because he's not like vomiting blood and he's not um, pooping blood. So if he's not seeing it, it should probably be more occult. In that setting, how do you interpret the LDH and haptoglobin? Would these labs be surprising? Yeah, it was just weird that he's not vomiting blood anywhere. Meg, I think you were kind of getting at it earlier. How yeah. You picked up on those kind of supporting your thinking when you, with the information of there being schistocytes. Yeah, all right. I'm definitely, I mean, I'm definitely stuck on the fact that like, right, the low B12, just like his, might be his nutritional status um, and alcohol use, but like the, right, the LDH and the haptoglobin like is just consistent with sharing red blood cells from somewhere. But I'm really stuck on like why that's happening or where. Um, and thinking of like my causes for that, like I mentioned HUS a while ago, but there's a lot that isn't consistent with that. Like another cause like TTP, um, but his renal function looks good. He's not really having neuro symptoms. Keep going. Uh, what are other causes of microcytic? But then that's like microcytic. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure who said this. Maybe Kevin knows. The, 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 when you think, when, when you hear a hoofbeats think horses, not zebras. Yeah. Somebody said that. I don't know. I don't know who it was. But, you know, I guess it, we're, we're into adages now. You know, Occam's razors are like, kind of like that. I kind of also like this as potentially as, a, as, a, as, a, as an adage to, to live by. I like, Meg, I like how you're thinking with, you know, trying to come up with some unifying diagnosis there with mm -hmm. like HUS, TTP. Um, we're, we're about to move on to Alcot 7, and it's going to be a little bit more specific of data. So let's, let's go there, and then we can talk some more. So the patient was started on B12 sub Q. We had a, another test come back that it was an antibody test for intrinsic factor, and it was markedly elevated at 205 with the normal being less than one. And then we had the repeat CBC that you guys can see there. 
And what we see is, you know, the hemoglobin is 4.5, and now a month later, it's 11.6. MCV is 86.7. RDW is 16.5. Platelets are 191. Uh, so now I'm thinking with the intrinsic factor, this is pernicious anemia, and that's why we have the low vitamin B12. Um, and also with that, uh, you have schistocytes for that. I'm just curious, wouldn't some of that room workup come back a little positive, like the ANA? That's a good question. I actually don't know. Dr. Abrams, do you have any insight on that? I'm, I'm sorry. Say again. Uh, like any of the room workup didn't come back. So I'm surprised like the ANA didn't come back positive. All, all like, totally normal. Yeah. All right. That's interesting. That's a good point. So I think I'm going to ask you guys to put your nickel down and tell me what you think the diagnosis might be. And then I think we're going to have a good discussion afterwards. Pernicious anemia with this intrinsic factor and antibody. I'm going with that too. Agreed. You're absolutely, oh, sorry, go ahead. You're absolutely right. It's pernicious anemia, B12 deficiency, but it didn't explain everything for me. Like we still had this active hemolytic picture going on, but it kind of seemed like I was stuck at there. There's two things going on, but it, it turns out I definitely wasn't taught this is B12 deficiency can be associated with uh, active hemolysis. Huh. So this was a unique case in that there was a pseudothrombotic microangiopathy occurring as a result of vitamin B12 deficiency due to um, pernicious anemia. I, I think, you know, and it was you, Megan, who got the, 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 this, the, these ellipticites, which I never even, which are the teardrops, which I never even thought of. And, and you know, I think Kevin's going to tell you a little bit about what they think the mechanism is, but in the context of what you said, it, it, it actually kind of makes sense. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about the mech because I definitely still don't know how that's connected. I just, all I know about them is I think of them, I think of red blood cells having trouble squeezing out of the spleen and forming that teardrop pattern. So teardrops, you're, that's the perfect way to think about it. Some common causes are bone marrow, fibrosis, granulomatous inflammation, hematopoietic or metastatic neoplasms. It's often seen with splenic abnormalities, can be seen with vitamin B12 deficiency. And then there was elliptocytes and that really there's either hereditary causes or iron deficiency anemia, thalassemia, megaloblastic anemia, and also it's it's nonspecific is the point of elliptocytes. I, I, I decided to ignore those because I had and, no idea what those were. I, and this is this is the way it was described to me, and uh, and so you know first of all it is a dyserythropoiesis, so B12 deficiency is that, and so these progenitor stores they're huge. I mean you know that the, the MCV is really big. And when they squeeze out of the bone marrow, they get lysed. Yeah. And so it is, it's thought that they, that that's where the lysis takes place. As they exit the bone marrow, they get, they get squished. Okay. That makes sense. Hemolysis is associated with pernicious anemia in 1.5% of cases. So this guy was the, the lucky 1.5%. And it's really twofold process with a mention of a third thing that might be going on too. And like Dr. Abrams said, it's can be intramedullary. So the the cells are so big that when they're leaving the bone marrow, trying to get out, they lice, or it can be uh, in extramedullary where because the, the blood RBC membranes deformed, you get them shearing against capillaries and this causes that pseudothrombotic microangiopathy. And I think that those two together help explain why we're also seeing the low platelets in this person, right? So it's like mimicking TPP or HUS. That's why I was, I was really impressed that you picked up on that. And another thing that we have to think about when we're thinking of this diagnosis I learned is autoimmune hemolytic anemia. And we were talking, there actually wasn't a Coombs test done. Oh yeah. So a positive Coombs test would support that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, 
but we also had the useful information of time where this person was treated with B12 and got better. So if autoimmune hemolytic anemia was concurrent with this picture, that wouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. So it's actually, you don't need the Coombs test in this case. We had a real interesting case of vitamin B12 deficiency um, with associated hemolytic anemia. So I think it's a good point to go over some teaching points for pernicious anemia, which is the result of vitamin B12 deficiency in the setting of chronic autoimmune gastritis. And there can be antibody formation against either intrinsic factor or the gastric parietal cells. There's often a latency period after which symptoms of anemia develop, and this can range um, on the order of magnitude of years. And the first symptoms to commonly develop include fatigue, pallor, tachycardia, and lightheadedness. And often after these symptoms, uh, you'll see the characteristic progressive neuropsych symptoms, such as peripheral numbness, paresthesias. Eventually, ataxia, weakness, and mental disturbances can occur. The diagnosis um, is made through a low B12 level, an MCV to, that suggests macrocytosis, so over the value of 100, hypersegmented neutrophils on peripheral blood smear, gastric atrophic lesions, and then the presence of anti-intrinsic factor, anti-parietal cell antibodies. Now, pernicious anemia, it's not often thought to be associated with hemolysis, but in 1.5% of cases, that can actually occur. And it's typically due to three causes. One is intramedullary, so the destruction of megaloblastic cells by bone marrow macrophages. It can be extramedullary due to impaired deformability of blood cell membrane, leading to fragmentations in the capillaries. And this is known as pseudothrombotic microangiopathy. And then the third is autoimmune hemolytic anemia. And this is often discovered uh, in the setting of a positive Coombs antibody test. And then as a refresher for hemolysis lab findings, so something to suggest in an active hemolytic process, you'll see elevated LDH, low haptoglobin, and then a mildly elevated indirect bilirubin. Pseudothrombotic microangiopathy, or pseudo-TMA, uh, mimics TTP, and differentiating the two is paramount. TTP is with evidence of reticulocytosis, whereas B12 defici deficiency has a reticulocyte count that suggests a hypoproliferative state. So pseudo-TMA will have a higher platelet count and LDH levels, and you can use something called the, the plasmic score, which is a clinical tool to estimate whether or not TTP might be occurring. So a low plasmic score more so correlates with pseudothrombotic microangiopathy if that's on the different. You become suspicious in the setting of vitamin B12 deficiency based on a triad of symptoms that include hemolytic anemia, thrombocytopenia, and schistocytes on the peripheral blood smear. And then something interesting is it's more often associated with pernicious anemia versus nutritional deficiency. And it's thought to be because pernicious anemia is a more severe form of anemia, so there's a lower average B12 and hemoglobin versus the nutritional deficiency etiology. The pathogenesis is thought to be due to a buildup of homocysteine, 
which causes endothelial dysfunction, activates the coagulation cascade, re resulting in platelet aggregation. So it does suggest a true thrombotic microangiopathic me mechanism, and it's not so pseudo after all. Something we unfortunately didn't have for our case was this is the most standard way of differentiating between autoimmune hemolyt hemolytic anemia versus pseudothrombotic microangiopathy. And you'd become suspicious for concurrent autoimmune hemolytic anemia in the setting of vitamin B12 deficiency with a positive Coombs antibody test. But in our case, the patient's hemoglobin improved with adequate vitamin B12 administration, which suggests that a concurrent autoimmune hemolytic anemia was unlikely because this this would we would have expected that this required glucocorticoids. Yeah, so this is a this is a direct tale on what I'm doing now, which is this ethics thing. And so I I, I read the story that I just love. So so there's this guy, his name was William Bosworth Castle, who uh, actually died in the 90s. He died peacefully at the age of uh, at, at the age of 92. And so his sort of eminence in medicine was was made early in his career when he discovered gastric intrinsic factor. So he's the one who discovered it. And if you look at the history of how people researched anemia and thought about anemia, so now we're in the late 1910s, early 1920s, and people had done these experiments where they tried feeding people different food with the hope that they'd fix their anemia. Okay? And, and they had some idea of what pernicious anemia was. They, they hadn't really figured out iron deficiency anemia, but anyhow, so in the early 20s, this, actually, I think George Whipple, so who Whipple's disease is named after, he figured out that if you gave people large amounts of liver, that you could cure their anemia. And, and when I say large amounts, you had to eat like over a half a pound of raw liver a day in order to, to treat your anemia. And so this was, it was the accepted treatment. And eventually people figured out that it was actually the iron in the anemia that, in the liver that was doing this, and there was, you know, because we know about B12 now, there was, you know, clearly B12 in there and there's ways around intrinsic factor. But anyhow, so what Castle did, I thought was both clever and unethical. And so what Castle, actually Castle worked at, at what I guess was now Boston University Hospital and he lived next to the kitchen there. And so he, came, he had the insight that there was something beyond just eating the food that did it. And so what he did, he figured out that, so every morning he woke up and he ate like a half a pound of meat. Actually, he ate beef at that time. And an hour later, he stuck his finger down his throat and vomited it up. And then he purified it. Okay, he, I don't, we won't even get into how he purified it. But the bottom line is he took this combination of, you know, he, he took this purified whatever and he, and he had two groups of patients. One, he just gave the same amount of meat he did. And the other group, he gave the combination of his gastric juice and his in the, in, the, in the regurgitated meat. And he found that the people who got the combination got better. And so he postulated that there was some sort of intrinsic factor that was in the gastric juice that cured that, that, that was responsible for curing the anemia. And shortly thereafter, they found the extrinsic factor, which was vitamin, they, they figured out it was a B vitamin. Uh, so that's vitamin B12. And so 
he's the one who, who figured out that, that there was this intrinsic factor. And again, as I said, now doing this ethics fellowship, and I'm not sure that, that infusing, you know, whatever purified, you know, vomitus from him into these people that were in the hospital for their B12 was, was, was ethical, but it's pretty cool. It is a cool and pretty gross story. That's so interesting. Thanks everyone for listening. It's been so fun to put these episodes together. We're really excited to share what we have in store. Until next time, keep it ain't no times three.